As Westminster prepares to ratify the Brexit trade deal, what is the future relationship between London and Brussels actually going to look like? And can Boris Johnson really bring about the healing process he now claims to desire? Another COVID-19 vaccine may be imminent, but can it be rolled out faster than the virus can spread? Plus, we hear from the head of Greenpeace International, Jennifer Morgan, who warns of the double risks posed by the pandemic and environmental change. That's all coming up right here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the Late Edition, coming to you from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. The fist pumping and the tie covered in tiny fish, pictures of tiny fish that is, not literal tiny fish, that would have been weird, suggested a message of unequivocal victory was being pushed last week by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Britain's Brexit negotiating team. Less partisan heads, however, have suggested otherwise, that it's now the EU which actually holds all the cards when it comes to the trade of goods, and that the UK has no handle on the services which make up the bulk of the economy. So what actually lies behind the rhetoric? Well, Monocle's Emma Nelson was joined by Lance Price, who served as Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street. Emma asked Lance how Boris Johnson can sell this deal to the UK Parliament, considering that this is a compromise. And compromising is, as many Brexiters would certainly see it, quite a European thing to do. Let's have a listen. Yes, so he has, as you say, presented this as uh, a slam-dunk victory for the British side. Um, I think he's acknowledged, uh, which is rare for Boris Johnson, uh, that there are certain omissions from the deal that he would have liked to see in there, including very significantly the financial services sector, which you referred to there, which is far more significant in terms of the balance of trade um, than the uh, trading goods, which are included in in the document. Now, there are various other things that uh, still remain to be resolved. There's nothing in there, for example, about Britain creative uh, industries, uh, which uh, form a a much, much larger part of our uh, economy than fishing, which uh, we were told was the the key issue that uh, uh, led to the brinkmanship at the very end of the negotiations, all of which, uh, in my view, was really um, for for a a bit of performance. Um, How would you have been communicating this deal? Were you sitting in number 10 at the moment? I mean, the images that we saw as the negotiations were were closing uh, were of open burger bags and Coca-Cola and wine glasses and and, and a packet of cheap chocolates. Is, Is that the tone that you would have been setting? Well, to, to be fair, I mean, I could be as critical uh, uh, as um, uh, I feel like being about the actual content of the deal, but the way in which they presented it was pretty much masterclass. Um, and uh, had I been looking after it, I probably would have done something very similar in the sense that I would have given the impression, um, uh, however fallacious that might have been, that we were battling to the very last minute to try and protect British interests um, and that the uh, terrible bogeyman of the European Union was threatening to do Britain down and we were standing firm in order to make sure that that uh, didn't happen. And I certainly would have uh, presented the deal, um, uh, however thin or otherwise it might have been, uh, as, as a victory for Britain. Because, frankly, if you're the British government, you can't do anything else. You can't say, well, we've negotiated a, an OK deal and, frankly, it was the best we could do and we'll just have to live with it, even if that happens to be the truth. Um, one thing that has been noticed is the fact that the ERG, the European Research Group, who are the absolute hardcore Brexiteers in, in the heart of all this, are suggesting that this is a good deal. That implies that this is as tough as tough can be. 
I mean, it is a tough deal. And if if they're happy, then um, I'm afraid an awful lot of more moderate and uh, perhaps more sensible people in in the country have reason to be cautious about the deal. Um, and in fact, uh, we have many, many reasons to be very cautious about the deal. The advantage to, uh, from Boris Johnson's point of view, is it is the only deal on the table. There is absolutely no prospect of renegotiating, renegotiating anything else. It is this or nothing. It is this or no deal. And that's why the opposition Labour Party in particular will, the majority of them at least, vote for it, which means that Boris Johnson is sitting pretty in the House of Commons tomorrow when MPs come back. And, and he's also uh, fortunate, I suppose, in the sense that I think for the rest of the country, most of them at least, there's a sense that, look, we're just fed up with the whole of this. Uh, we don't want to talk about it anymore. It's time to move on. Um, and of course, there's the timing of it with the deal coming, I think, quite deliberately on Christmas Eve, which meant that um, uh, most sane people had better things on their minds than to worry about the nitty gritty of, uh, of a 2000 page document. You mentioned the issue for Labour tomorrow insofar as it's thought that it's going to be a pretty straightforward affair to get this deal through uh, the British Parliament, which is meeting um, unusually on the 30th of uh, December. But you have this struggle now that the Labour Party in opposition has said that it will back the deal because it is better than no deal. But we already see people saying, well, there's division in Labour now, don't rally around a rotten deal. And it means that it is hugely difficult if things go wrong with Brexit for anybody to say to Labour, well, actually, you backed this. I mean, how would you be handling that? Well, I think that Keir Starmer has made the right decision, but it was, as you suggest, a very, very difficult decision. There was there was no outcome here that uh, Keir Starmer could unite the Labour Party uh, around. He was going to have a rebellion one way or the other. And the judgment he's taken is to say that the alternative here was no deal, therefore we will support a deal because it is by far the better of the two uh, choices presented to MPs. But he has to do it in such a way as to say, look, this doesn't mean that we support every dot and comma. It doesn't mean that we think that this is better than necessarily than the deal we had before when we were members of the European Union. Um, and if he fills his speech tomorrow, which I'm sure he will, with lots of caveats about this being um, conditional support, uh, if you like, um, and that the deal signed with the European Union is a base on which to build, then I think he'll, in terms of the public opinion and uh, the electorate and, and, and how people view the, the Labour Party, um, he will get over the fact that uh, he is uh, voting for it. I mean, his biggest fear, I think, is uh, Boris Johnson standing up in the House of Commons week after week after week and said, you wouldn't even back this deal. Um, and um, he is, he's got his eye, there are local elections coming up in, in May, um, uh, if they go ahead as scheduled. Um, and the general election isn't for another almost four years. So he's got his eye on that general uh, election, by which time no one will remember what debate was held in the House of Commons on the 30th of December 2020. Tell us a little bit about how you advise a foreign stra relations strategy now for the United Kingdom when it comes to dealing with, with Brussels. Um, for so long, I think you mentioned it, the, the perception of the European Union as being the bogeyman. The, the British can no longer have that uh, sort of easy adversary when it comes to domestic um, communications. But when it comes to talking to the EU, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of the Swiss papers, for example, have been saying, well, let's reassess our relationship with the United with the, with the European Union as a result of what's been done with Brexit. And most of the commentary have just gone, actually, I think we'll stick with what we've got. Thank you very much. 
Yes, and I think that is a, a, a very interesting um, uh, perspective that has been taken by the Swiss. And of course, there are a lot of other countries on the periphery of Europe. Um, I mean, Switzerland has put it to the people a number of times as to whether they should join the European Union. And the Swiss government has recommended that they should. And the Swiss people have uh, often quite narrowly decided that they shouldn't. Um, so the whole question, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson is right to an extent that Britain is still a very large and very significant economy and political and strategic power. So the way in which Britain, the United Kingdom, deals with the European Union will be of huge significance to uh, the European Union's relationship with the rest of the world, particularly those countries on the periphery of its borders. Um, and so that presents um, opportunities, actually, to be fair to, to Britain. And one of the ways in which I think it can make the most of those opportunities is to be more fleet of foot in its decision making um, on some of the critical issues, whether it's around uh, China, for, for, for example, or um, some of the other very difficult issues which 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 creates splits within the European Union. Um, and therefore, it takes the European Union a long time to get consensus between its member states on, on how to respond uh, to the activities of, of foreign powers who may be doing things that some of us disapprove of. The British government in a much more, uh, it, it does have a degree, a far greater degree of freedom now, which means it can make quick decisions in how to respond to those things. Um, and in a sense, show the European Union up. But it can't spend its whole time showing the European Union up because it has to have a good, strong, productive, creative relationship with the European Union in its own interest. So it has to stop treating the European Union like a bogeyman. There may be occasions when it says, well, look, actually, frankly, we were able to do things a lot quicker and better than the EU did, uh, but they're still our friends. Um, and uh, for all sorts of good strategic economic reasons, uh, we're going to have as close a, a diplomatic relationship with them as we possibly can. Lance Price speaking to Emma Nelson earlier today on The Globalist. It is hearteningly possible that the UK is days, perhaps hours, from getting a third COVID-19 vaccine. This one, the work of AstraZeneca and Oxford University. All being well, it could be deployed within the week, and not a moment too soon. Yesterday saw records broken in the UK for both confirmed cases of COVID-19 and deaths associated with the virus, and nobody expects the upward momentum to taper, especially as the consequences of Christmas become a apparent. Well, earlier I was joined with more on this by Monocle 24's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith. Chris is, of course, also a virologist at Cambridge University. I started by asking Chris just how great a leap forward this new vaccine might be. Well, if we can get the AstraZeneca one off the mark, and uh, happy post-Christmas, Andrew, by the way, <laughs> then what this does is to shift things along very nicely on a number of different fronts. And the reason it it does that is because one there's a lot of this made already based in britain astrazeneca headquartered here uh, have a very big order from the uk 100 million doses and they've already pre-made a significant amount of a vaccine so it's a hot start number two it's a lot cheaper than the rival offers and uh, astrazeneca say they're not in this to make money out of this vaccine just to cover costs and that means the price tag is a lot lower which obviously that's got to help especially when we've already dropped about half a trillion quid trying to sort out the the pandemic so far and the other thing that really is a selling point for this is that it's much easier to deploy than the rival pfizer 
vaccine, which as you know, many headlines have been made about the fact it has to be kept at minus 70 to minus 80 degrees until just before you need it. It comes in batches of 975 doses, which means you've basically got to have a queue with 975 people in it to make sure you don't waste any. This logistical headache has meant that there have been some stumbles when trying to roll this out, especially to those judged to be the most needy crowd. Having AstraZeneca's vaccine added to the formulary will mean that you can go in in a more agile way, get to places like care homes, which have been difficult to access because they don't have 975 people in a care home usually and also we can begin to put it into people like frontline healthcare workers because the nhs in the uk is really struggling at the moment with having enough staff because we haven't necessarily got lots of staff with covid but we got lots of staff who are contacts of people with covid so they're having to isolate we've also got uh, questions around the schools going back in january whether there's going to be a staggered start no start whatever teachers are saying justifiably well hang on you need me to run this school I need to be protected so that I can carry on being at work. So teachers also could be accessed with this vaccine. So uh, a number of big pro plus points, sort of pros for if we can get this approved. I mean, you're quite right that developing a vaccine is one thing. Meeting the logistical challenge of getting it into people's arms is another. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in a new report says the UK right now, from where it is, needs two million vaccinations per week. How far are we from that? Well, I mean, the target that was initially sort of rolled out was let's get to a million people a week. But the thing is, if you think about it, there are 50 plus million people on the list who need vaccinating in the UK. So that's a year just to get through people once. And what we don't know is how long am I going to be protected for? So I have the vaccine. What if I discover that I'm only protected for six months? to eight months well we've created the virological equivalent of the fourth bridge you know that famous structure where you start repainting it before you've even finished repainting it and and so these questions importantly need to be answered but having multiple avenues of attack and getting from a million to perhaps two million shrinks that down to six months to get through the majority of people and makes it more of a tractical track tractable problem but it's, it's still a headache to do all of this at the scale they need to do it and the speed we need to do it is that the fact that we're not yet sure how long vaccinations protect us is that the argument against because it does seem like a, a fairly logical conclusion for the uk at least right now just to say look this is bad it may run away with itself we're not far from a vaccine just everybody stay indoors for the next two months and we'll be out the other side of this uh, I, I don't think that's going to be feasible, to be honest, on so many levels, because the, the educational cost that's already been paid, we all acknowledge that, the economic cost that, that's already been paid, I mentioned the half a trillion quid or so that we think we're, we're down already, not just in what we'll lose in the future, but what we've already spent trying to prop the country up. This is not sustainable in the long term, the damage would be too severe. So we need some kind of compromise where people can continue to have some kind of semblance of, not just for their mental health activity, but economic activity and education activity but also safe activity so i think the strategy of going for the people who are uh, a most vulnerable and b delivering the health care that we need to conserve because you know ostensibly a lot of what we're doing at the moment is all about defending the nhs because we've got record numbers of people in hospital now we've actually beaten if if that's the right phrase to use the number of people who have been admitted with covid now compared to what it was like in march and april and and if we're not careful, we will completely capsize the ship. So we need a way of defending 
the way the NHS is working and that means looking after our staff because it's the staff that make the NHS work not just having beds in wards so there's a number of, of reasons why going in quickly with with as many vaccines as we can can lay our hands on into strategic groups not just risk groups but also people doing the the key roles that keep those other aspects going that that I think is going to be the strategy I mean rolling out the vaccines does also of course pose the question of what to do when people refuse to take it. Spain has said that it's going to not only keep a register of those who refuse but share it uh, with other EU countries. I don't think it's necessary to be a sort of dyed-in-the-wool foil hatter to be somewhat uneasy about this. Wouldn't it be more reasonable just to suggest that there is a regime of vaccination certificates as, for example, many West African countries have utilised for years to ensure that people are vaccinated against yellow fever before arriving in their country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I went off to Zambia and uh, I had my yellow fever vaccination in my in my passport. But at the same time, if I had a hundred dollar bill in the other hand and I'd handed that to the man at the desk, he was quite happy to accept that uh, in, in place of a yellow fever certificate. So it's not a given that if you've got a bit of paper, it means anything. That's the first point. The second point is if you don't know how long the protection actually lasts for, which we don't, it's meaningless because I could give you a piece of paper that said, well done, Andrew, you've got your vaccine. Well, if it wears off in a week's time, where does that leave you when you want to go back to Australia? It's just not going to work. So until we have a lot more data, it's not reasonable to start putting in place laws and and strict requirements on people to do things because it doesn't actually have a a, a sort of strong foundation on which it's based, certainly not a scientific one and therefore not a legal one either. So I think these things will, will come out in the wash. I'm very against mandating things. Because I think that if you do that, it's a slippery slope and it sends out the wrong messages. It's much better to give people very clear information and make sure that the right information goes to the people who really need it. And then they make an informed choice, but it's their choice. And that's the key thing. And we do have a a part of our our legislation in this country that says that uh, we don't force people to take medicines. It's part of the Health Care Act of, I think, 1984. And so we can't compel people to have a treatment they don't want. So it's more about carrot rather than stick. And and I, I do question what Spain are saying they're going to do. I think naming and shaming people is, is a, sl- a slippery slope. And I don't think we should be going down that road. We should be giving people clear information about why a vaccine is a good idea and how it can help them and making it easy for people to access that information and then access a vaccine, not basically shaming people into just going and getting something so that they don't get stigmatised. That was Dr Chris Smith, Monocle 24's health and science correspondent. With any luck at all, next year we'll see many of our lives return to some degree of normality. Even travel around the world may begin to resume. But what will that mean for climate change and carbon emissions? It's a topic that was top of our priority list when 2020 started and could be again in the coming year as world leaders prepare for a major UN climate summit in Glasgow. Well, Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack has been hearing from Jennifer Morgan, head of Greenpeace International. Chris began by asking Jennifer about the impact that the pandemic has had on the fight against climate change. Well, I think clearly the pandemic and the response to it has had to take front and centre stage to take care of people. And I think that that's been needed and that's I think that's obvious. I think there's lots to learn from this pandemic and there are openings that are occurring. You know, for example, in these recovery packages that are moving forward, those funds 
you know, is an opportunity to be supporting investments in exactly the direction that's needed to address the climate crisis. And in a way, the decisions that were going to be made over the next five years, whatever, made in a very short time frame. I think the other piece that maybe can help is that it's quite clear that the countries that have followed or listened to the science and the scientists' advice and then adapted that to their policies are faring better in addressing the pandemic than certainly those that haven't. And it reinforces that. And I think that's absolutely true of climate as well. Obviously, and I think we're going to see in the coming weeks, protest, creative protest, creative ways of showing up are coming back. I know there's a number of things that have been happening. I know that in, in Germany, there's protesters in front of a coal mine that's moving forward to destroy you know, villages in Germany. So I think you're going to see a lot of the movement uh, move more into uh, ways that are COVID compliant, but continuing to demonstrate how important they see the issue. But I, I think it's very important for people to understand that you don't have to stop your economy in order to reduce emissions. <laughs> your economy can move forward and actually um, provide even more for people by reducing pollution, by shifting into clean energy, by putting in place mobility systems that people can get around and you know, have a good welfare for people. And we need these types of measures put in place because we need to continue that trend of emissions reductions at a very significant pace for, for decades to come. Talk a little more about that, if you could. There does seem like there is a tension right now between, you know, balancing economic concerns. Most countries are facing one of the worst economic crises in their lifetime. But as you say, doing it in a way that potentially also helps move the ball forward on confronting climate change. How do you convince people that those are one and the same thing? Are they one and the same thing? Is this really the time for a Green New Deal when many businesses simply need to find a way to stay open? Well, I think it is the right time. It, it kind of has to be the right time. But I also think you can really move forward together. So if you take the energy sector, for example, it's quite clear that we shouldn't be, you've seen the drop in oil prices. You've seen companies actually, you know, the shale in the United States declining. That fact should now be used as a moment to, number one, look after those workers and either retrain or find, make sure their health insurance continues and be putting funds into that so that they're being retrained into the green, quote unquote, industries, whether that be in the renewable side of things, whether that in the mobility sector the engineers that are needed for that. And so it's about taking care of those workers that are declining, but also seeing where do we need to be going in the future and having the social package that's there for COVID be in a way climate compliant. And I think that can help move the ball forward on that side of things. I think in terms of convincing people, what I have seen is actually a, a much greater understanding by people that the system, the way that it was working where you know there was high air pollution where it was just so clear that you know those that are most vulnerable to health pandemics are also the most vulnerable to climate change 
that the healthcare systems aren't working, that the social equalities aren't working. And therefore we need a different kind of an approach and a green and social new deal can provide that. And so it's really about meeting people where they're at and where their concerns are, and then crafting the policies and directing the funding into that intersection, I guess I would say. And I think that we're in one of those disruptive moments where even major outlets like the Financial Times are questioning neoliberalism and saying it's pretty clear it hasn't worked. Breaking that down into what that means for people's lives and how they're going to be living and being taken care of in the future, I think, is the key. Well, one fundamental shift I did want to touch on, as you also mentioned, for that matter, air pollution there. Travel is something that, of course, has been dramatically affected by the pandemic. What is your feeling there in terms of what needs to happen now? People still need to travel. We still want to visit other countries. What is the future, particularly, of flying for you? Well, I think the future of flying is going to be very different. I mean, I think one poses the question, is this trip essential, absolutely essential for what I need to do? My sense is also through the pandemic, you're having also some mindset shifts of people of what's really important. And so I think you're going to see a continued reduction of travel. I know everybody's experiencing, you know, the video conferences and how much more one can get done actually, and don't need to fly everywhere also on the business side of things. I see that continuing. And I think that it's pretty clear that the airline industry also needs to be looking at how it's going to become, you know, go to zero emissions and investing in that transition rather than just trying to go back to where things were. Well, perhaps just on that, I do find it interesting to go back almost to the beginning of our conversation when it comes to diplomats meeting in rooms and talking. It does feel like that is still going to be important to some degree. So where where do you sit on that in terms of, you know, travel shouldn't necessarily stop. You speak of essential travel, but where is the line there for you? Well, I think negotiations and diplomats, I think that will need to come back. I think also from a perspective of transparency into what's happening, because I think one of the worrying trends during the COVID time period has been the greater level of intransparency around negotiations that are occurring. So I would count, you know, gatherings that are are fundamental for moving the world forward on climate change or getting key policies in place in that essential space. That was Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack in conversation with Jennifer Morgan, head of Greenpeace International. And that is all for today's late edition. A big thank you to our producer Carlotta Ribello and to our studio manager Louis Allen. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thanks for being with us. <laughs>